Welcome to First EC. Welcome to all members of the family and any visitors who aren't yet quite members of the family. We look forward to worshiping with all of you this morning. I have three things that I wanted to point out this morning for announcements. Um, first of all, I see that our, our total um, that for our donation going to LCCM is creeping up just a little bit more. We're almost to that $2,000 mark. Um, again, thank you, and if you have the opportunity to to donate, you can go out online, you see the instructions there on how you can just click and click and donate online, or you have other, other options there as well. So thank you very much for your generosity, and I'm sure LCCM appreciates it as well. We also want to remember that this afternoon uh, we're having a potluck with our friends from Interfaith Manor, and um, no one from Palm View was able to come, we invited them as well, but it'll be our friends from Interfaith Manor, 4 o'clock. I also want to ask you that when you come, let's make sure that we don't have First DC people sitting at these tables and then interfaith people sitting over at those tables. Let's make sure we mix in, let's mingle, let's um, make sure that we get a chance to chat with them and, and get to know them and let them get to know us as well. And then also a reminder that next Sunday, next Sunday evening we'll be starting our Bible study. We're going to talk about parables, the, Jesus, the, the stories that Jesus told and also next Sunday, uh, we will be celebrating communion uh, with, with all the rest of the world. It's Worldwide Communion Sunday, so we'll, we will be participating in communion here next week. And we will be doing it in, in the pews so that we can all take it together. And theoretically, or the concept is that we're not only taking it together as a family, but we're taking it with the whole, the whole family all around the world as well. So look forward to that. Any other announcements, any other things on the schedule that we need to, need to know about today? Okay, well then I'll ask us to, let's prepare our hearts for worship. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, this opportunity to come before you and to offer you praise, to offer you worship and to also offer you an open heart and open ears. We look forward to hearing from you, Lord, and we look forward to singing your praises, to, to talking to you in prayer, and just to, to having a, a time of, of rest with you and, and a time for you to speak to us. Father, I pray that everything we do here this morning, everything we sing, say, and do would be to your honor and to your glory. And I pray it in Jesus' name. This morning, my call to worship is from Psalm 96, and you're probably going to think that I keep using the same one over and over, because they all sound very much alike, but I have used a different one every Sunday that I've been here. I'm just reading through the Psalms, and it's just always a reminder. Again, this morning, Psalm 96, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. I invite you to stand and let's sing along with the praise band this morning. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord as we wait upon the Lord. Upon 
Of his wind and 
Can be seated. There's just this is why the Psalms have it in there so often. There's just something about singing our praises. There's also just something wonderful about these musical sermons, really, if you look at them and and, and really pay attention to the words. So we take we're going to take time now to um, offer up prayer requests and offer up praises, but but. Before we do that, I wanted to read a card from you that um, is from Thelma and Arvel, and of course we're going to want to pray for them, but they sent this card this morning that says, Dear Friends and Church Family, <clears throat> Arvel and I do look at all of you as our friends and family. We both cannot tell you how much your friendship has meant to us over the years. Now, at a time like this, it is so comforting to know that all of you have been praying for us. We so appreciate all the cards, phone calls, visits, gifts, and concern that you have expressed. Arvel wants you to know that he is at <clears throat> excuse me. Arvel wants you to know that he is at peace and is ready to be with Jesus and ready to have his new body. The family, while knowing that we will always miss him, when the time comes, we are also at peace, knowing our precious loved one will be resting in the loving arms of our Savior. Again, thank you sincerely. Love, Thelma and Arvel. So. 
So <laughs> we'll definitely pray for, pray for Thelma, pray for Arvo. I did get a chance to talk to him last night. He is looking forward to his son coming in today. He had flown in last night, um, looking forward to a visit today. So um, prayer requests. I already have one from Curtis. We're going to pray for some personal, personal issues that he has expressed um, any other prayer requests that we have this morning? Jeff has one. We would like prayers for our son, Jeffrey. He will have surgery on Wednesday. Okay. And Jeff? So I had asked for prayers for our, our old neighbor, Shirley, last week. Uh, sadly, she is passed away. She passed away Wednesday. So prayers for her family and friends. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Any, any others? Yeah. Uh, my wife celebrated a birthday this week. Okay. Um, I won't say how old she is. Okay. Just out of respect for myself. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, happy birthday. <laughs> and up top. Uh, from Zoom, just Jim Rothline says that he just would want prayer, that he has some energy and will to go out and socialize and be with people, that he's feeling kind of isolated and would like to break out of that if possible. Okay. Does he have, do you have any way of communicating back, or, or maybe I'm... <laughs> JR, can you give us an update on, on the job, the job interview, and how things are going with the new job, if, if there was one? So we'll pray for his feeling isolated while we're waiting for a response. Any other, any other prayer, prayer requests? Or praises. Let's have some praises. Cooler weather. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's that weather where... I actually saw a meme on Facebook. It's like 6 a.m. It's winter, and like 10 p.m. or 10 a.m. Then it's then it's spring, and we get summer in the afternoon, and then it's fall in the in the evening. So, but it's the perfect weather now. To, I've been opening up the windows in my office, and yeah, cooler weather. Any other praises? Sam. No matter how bad things look today, God is in control. Amen. I don't even need to preach a sermon. Right there it was. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. A lot, of, a lot of things make us question, but uh, yep, we just got to come right back to that fact. All right. Well, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and go to the Lord, and if we hear from, if we hear from Jim, we'll, we'll, we'll include that later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. We thank you that you've just gifted us with, with another day to serve you and to, and to serve others. And especially this day where we can come together and, and just praise you as a family. Father, we, we were members of our family who have different kinds of ailments, different stages in life, and we especially want to lift up Arvel. Um, we're thankful that he has such a strong, solid faith, and we pray that he'll have a good visit with his son today. We pray for Thelma as a, as a caregiver and give her strength. And as a family member, of course, give her strength and peace and, and just just. Find ways to, to let that family know that, that you're with them. And Father, we pray for other members of our family. Curtis here has shared with me some personal issues that he would like prayer for. You know what those issues are, and Father, I pray that you will help him with those, and I pray that you'll help put people in front of him who can help him with those, with those issues. We pray for Jim Rothline, who is feeling a little isolated. He'd like some energy, Lord. So I pray that you'll just, you'll just touch him with your hand of, 
of faith and, and energy and just, just a recognition, as, as Sam just reminded us, that no matter what he's facing, no matter what is scaring him or keeping him in, that, that there's a song that talks about my, my fears are afraid of you. And so, Father, I pray that, that you will remind him of that, that you're with him, you'll take his hand, you'll lead him out of that house and out to meet other people and just to, to get past that, that feeling of isolation. We pray for the family of this neighbor, Shirley, as, as she had passed last week, and pray for comfort for that family. We pray for the surgeons, the doctors, the people who will be working with, with Donna's, um, Donna's son, Jeffrey, that we pray that that operation will go well and smoothly, and that he also will know that you're sta- sitting right by him, holding his hand through that surgery as well. And we thank you for, for birthdays. We, we praise you for Amanda and, and all that she has accomplished and all that she does for her family. And just thank you for, for her birthday and, and for any of those others who are celebrating birthdays or have celebrated a birthday last week. Father, I also thank you for provision. Thank you for the way you provide for us each week. And so I ask you to bless the offering that we have collected today. I pray that you'll use it to further your kingdom and to further your church. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll ask you to stand as we sing our hymn number 74. We'll sing another musical prayer.
please be seated. And we're going to continue our series called It's Not Easy Being a Church. It's also not easy to preach without your Bible. Thank you. Behind every good man is a better woman. Thank you. <laughs> and we're going to be taking a look at the next part of this letter. We've been reading through it. We've, um, we know that it was written by the, by the Apostle John. He's about 85 years old at this point, and he's having some problems in his church. And he's decided that he needs to deal with them. And he's, doing it, and he's doing the right thing. I mean, I, I did want to make a note there that, um, that as a church, of course, we need to deal with, with problems, with issues. I know that there are a lot of churches that just, I shouldn't say a lot, I know that there are churches that just let things go, they'll work themselves out, or um, someone will forget how mad they were, or this and that, but there, there are things that we need to, that we need to deal with, and and if the Bible says something's wrong, well, then it's wrong, and we need to, we need to take care of it and things like that. That's what, John's, that's what John's dealing with here. He is writing to this church, making sure they know where he stands with them, where they stand with God. And he's been hitting them a little bit hard to some degree, and it's very possible that he may have already scared a few members of his congregation just as he's been talking about, you might think you're walking in the light, but if you're doing this or that, you're not. Or if you say we have no sin, we're a liar. I mean, we know that, and we, we live that way, but remember those, those Gnostics at the time were trying to convince them that it's not really you sinning. It's, it's your body, and, and you are the spirit, and you, we, we don't need to go through all that again. But the point is, you know, they were trying to make some very convincing arguments. And some of them might be a little bit confused now at this point in the letter, they might be confused about where they stand with God. And of course, by us going through this, this letter at this point, some of you might be a little bit confused also about where you stand right now with God. We've been talking about walking in the light, walking in darkness, and maybe you're wondering, am I, am I walking in the, in the light, or have there been some, some travels through that path of, of darkness? You might wonder, was, was Pastor Jeff looking at me last week when he read Jan, John's warning about how we need to love every single member of the congregation? He gave us some tough, tough things to think about. Well, in the next set of verses, he's going to be stepping away a bit from, from this hard-hitting preaching, if you will, and he, he just gives some words of encouragement, words of love. And he presents them in a way that the, that the Bible translators have have written it in sort of, it must have been poetic, it's very rhythmic, and so they've written it in a way that kind of makes it look like um, a poem or a song. And I do, wanna, I do want you to, if, if you would oblige me, just take out the, the Pew Bible in front of you and turn all the way back to page 1899. I just want you to see what I'm talking about, see how it's written. Page 1899, and, and if you're using your regular Bible, we're 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12. But in the, in the Pew Bible, like I said, page 1899, all the way in the back. And you'll see, you'll see in the right-hand column, in the bottom half, what, what I'm talking about. And I'm, I'm just waiting until I don't hear any more pages and <laughs> make sure everybody's there. You just kind of notice how the letter is written just like a letter for so long there. It's just following a narrative form. And then all of a sudden, verse 12, you see how it's written differently. It looks like the way you might look at the, the book of Psalms, for instance, or something like that. Something very poetic, something very rhythmic, and it's, it's a bit repetitive. You'll see as we read through it that he repeats himself, but one technical thing I want to point out is that the first part of the, le- the verses 12 and 13, he's explaining why he's writing this letter. And he's using this verb write in, in a tense that means right now. I'm writing this letter right now, and here's why. Then in verse 14, he's going to repeat himself, but it's going to be more of a thought. It's an aorist tense, more of a thought of, of 
con- continuity, more of a continuous thing. And so when he says, I write this, I, I write to you, or yeah, I write to you, dear children, I write to you, fathers, I write to you. When he says, I write to you, that second time, he's, he's saying it more of the sense of, when I write to you, here's why. Or, I like to write to you, dear children, because of this or that. So the first time, he says, and, and if I read it from the NIV, it starts out by saying, I am writing to you. And so you get that sense of just, just one time. So I, went, I, just, I just wanted you to see, wanted you to see the, the fact that um, it, it is kind of presented as a, a bit of a rhyme or a bit of a, a poem. And so let's take a look at it. I just wanted you to see that. Thank you for obliging me. I wanted you to see where we are. Let's, let's read it together here, starting in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. He says, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So John takes the time here, just like any good father would do, to calm their fears and to provide some reassurance. By addressing the children, the fathers, and the young men, he's speaking to the entire church. But he ends up reminding them in separate groups that as members of the new covenant, their sins are forgiven, they know the truth, and they have overcome the devil. He has words of love, first of all, for his dear children. And so he says it in verse 12 and then repeats it in verse 14, this thought about his dear children. It was kind of a common thing for the early Christians to address their followers in those family terms. John does it very frequently. We can look back at chapter 2, verse 1, where he had said again, my dear children. He's giving that, that impression of love and, and concern and care for them as a, as a father. He's emphasizing the fact that his strong words that he's had are words of love. He wants to reassure his congregation about their place in God's household. He's reiterating what he had argued about before. Their sins are forgiven. It's a completed fact. It's a done deal. Jesus has died and satisfied the requirements of salvation. Jesus is the perfect atonement, the perfect propitiation. And the other point that John is reminding his congregation is that they know the Father. It's the natural result of their redemption and renewal as he described in last week's message. They know him, they abide in him, and they walk in his light. So freed from sin, they're now very conscious of the intimate relationship they have with God as Father. Remember that tight relationship we were talking about. And this is what gives so much meaning to the term children. Children. Christians are children of God. Now you'll hear some people just talk about everybody being a child of God. They are a creation of God, but only the Christians are children of God in this spiritual sense, that we can actually see God as our Father like nobody else can. We have the privilege of knowing God as that Hebrew word Abba. It, means, it, it really is an intimate term. It really means daddy. Abba is daddy. Daddy, father, Abba. Did I say Hebrew? Anyhow. Then John had some words of love for the fathers of the church. And it's actually pretty rare to find a reference in the New Testament as Christ, for Christians as fathers. Usually when they use the term fathers, they're talking about someone from the past, someone, one of the ancient fathers, if you will, from the past, ancestors who have long since been dead. It's very likely that the general meaning here is those who are mature in their faith. And I don't think John's only talking to the men in his congregation. 
The custom of the time and the culture there was to address adults with a, with a general term like fathers or brothers. But when he says fathers, he's implying that he's also thinking about all the mature members of the church, and that would include the women. We still do that today, of course. I could easily address all of you as guys. I could say, come on, guys, you know what I mean, or come on, guys, let's, let's sing together. Since the mature Christians in his congregation are included in that first phrase, the dear children he was just addressing, well, then they're also included in that group that knows the Father. Everybody, mature Christians, baby Christians, they share the same privilege. But John points out a difference here. Fathers know him, quote, who is from the beginning. Could refer to God, probably refers to Jesus. We remember that Jesus' existence from the beginning was important enough to John that he wanted to make sure he pointed it out right away, the start of his gospel, and in this letter as well. So what's the point that he's trying to make? He's saying those who are mature in the faith, whose spiritual maturity and experience reach back lots and lots of years, not just like four or five, but like 40 or 50 or, or more, they have a knowledge of God that's anchored securely in the things of the past. And so their seasoned wisdom provides the basis for their unshakable faith in their present circumstances. I told Orville last night that I thought of him when I was preparing this, that I was going to mention him in the sermon this morning. That's the kind, he, the point he is in his life, he has this unshakable faith that he knows exactly what his next step is going to be. That's the kind of person that, that John's talking about here as, as fathers, and then finally, John has words of love for young men as well. If we would say that the fathers of the church provide a steadfast anchor of faith, it's the younger Christians, both men and women, who are seen as engaging in the daily battle of living that faith in the struggles of the world. And again, looking at John's time and culture, that phrase young men was generally associated with People who have strength and vigor, young believers usually exhibit a spiritual strength and a spiritual vigor. Their newfound knowledge of God brings vigor and vitality that's not always found in more mature Christians. But John encourages these young Christians by saying that they are strong and that God's word abides within them and gives them strength. It gives them the strength for one purpose— it has overcome the evil one. In chapter 3, he's going to remind us that our spiritual life is one that includes a conflict with the devil. And we know that Paul says the same thing to the church in Ephesus when he tells them that their struggle is not against humankind, but against the authorities and powers of evil in the heavenly realms. But notice that John doesn't encourage the young men to defeat these forces. Instead, he says, you've already overcome them. Again and again, we need to remind ourselves that the Christian life is a celebration of an accomplished fact. When were those forces defeated? Paul wrote in Colossians 2.15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, meaning Jesus, made a public, public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. John reminded us last week, he, remember he said, the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. It's an accomplished feat, a done deal. It is finished. John's providing words of love to his flock. In our first two sermons, we heard some strong words from him. We heard him tell his congregation not to listen to those people who had left and who have claimed that they haven't sinned. He says they're liars. We heard him challenge his congregation. You know, you talk a good game, but can you prove it? And so between those former members trying to hit them with new doctrine and then John saying, prove, prove what you're saying, there might be some of them who are just a little unsure of their standing. It's like your father who may have been 
scolding you or warning you and you see his face getting redder, his voice is getting louder, it's getting higher, his blood pressure is building. And then he stops. He takes a breath and says, but listen, you need to know that I love you. That's what John's doing here. You remember your dad saying, this is going to hurt you more than it hurt, or excuse me, he says, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. He was lying, of course, but, they, but he meant well. <laughs> no, we know the point. You know, it hurt you physically, hurt me physically, but it hurt him emotionally. It, it hurt, you know, because he loves, loves you so much. And that's what, that's what John's saying here. He's, he's making sure they know these are words of love. He wants to make sure they know that their sins have been forgiven. And so now we leave the, the poetic part of the, the letter and and continue reading on, but these are still words of love. But now he wants to talk to us about our love of the world. This is where John provides some more fatherly advice, and of course, some preacherly advice. He follows his reassurance there with a warning now. He reminds his congregation that two choices stand before everyone, even those people in the church. He says either we love the Father or we love the world. John has just affirmed his faithful believers, but now he cautions them about falling into spiritual compromise, demonstrating spiritual activity while the heart is still possessed by the world. I'd add here too, as a a church, the term is assimilation. We want to remember to make sure that the world, we want the world to look more like the church and not the church to look more like the world. We want to keep that in mind. He's saying that this temptation, this, these choices that, that stand before us, it doesn't just happen out there. It happens in here as well. He says, let's, so let's listen to his warning here, starting in verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now at first, this might cause a little bit of confusion because John told us last week we're supposed to love all of our brothers and sisters. And in his gospel, he's Specifically in in chapter 3, verse 16, he tells us that God loves the whole world. And even though the world is a place of disbelief, God's love for the world doesn't stop. He actually set out to save and redeem the world he created. So shouldn't we love the world too, then? Well, what John's actually saying is that Christians should avoid being in love with the godlessness of the world with the realm of darkness that brings pleasures of the flesh. That kind of love doesn't match up with the true love of the Father. And in verses 16 through 17, John lists the three characteristics of this ungodly love. The lust of the flesh, those are the things about humanity, about humankind that stand in contrast to God. Any desire, any sinful, feel-good kind of interest that draws us away from God, or at least makes continuing fellowship with God impossible. And then there's the lust of the eyes, sinful interests that we have in what we see. The eye is often used as a metaphor for sinful passion that will corrupt. We know that the Bible tells us when David saw Bathsheba, she was very pleasing to his eye. And then there's the pride of life, This boastfulness, the Greek word for pride, alizonia, actually means boastfulness and comes from the root word ali, meaning wandering or roaming. It actually was meant to refer to a vagabond making empty boasts about having cures to rid people of all their ills. We used to call them snake oil salesmen, now we call them scam artists. But that's the kind of of person, boastful person. And it's interesting that... uh, In John's day, this term was often used to describe 
speakers, orators, we understand that perhaps, philosophers, officials, but then also doctors and cooks for some reason. I don't know why cooks would not be able to to deliver what they promise, but um, I mean, I can understand officials and political people. But anyhow, that's, that's what we're talking about here. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These are the things that are in the devil's playbook. I use playbook because we're into the football season. Um, we're well into the third week of the pro season. I don't know how many weeks the high schools have been playing now, but football, football, football. We're all into, into football. And... Um, Every, every team has a playbook. They have some kind of a playbook. When they go out there, they're going to do, when they're on offense, they're going to do one of three things. They're either going to pass the ball, they're going to run the ball, or they're going to kick the ball, right? So their playbook really kind of narrows down to three things. Now, they, they might have 27 different ways to run the ball and 27 different ways to throw the ball and maybe three or four ways to kick the ball. Maybe one of those plays is a fake but if they fake, they're still going to run the ball or pass the ball. So three things that they are, they're going to do on, on offense. The devil's the same way. His playbook has three plays. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life, boastfulness. Now he might have 2,700 <laughs> plays in his, for lust of the eyes and 2,700 plays for lust of the flesh. You know, you get the picture. But that's, that's his playbook. And we actually see him using his playbook all the way back in the beginning, all the way back with, with Eve in the garden. When the, after the, 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 the serpent, who was more crafty than any of the other wild animals, after he has spoken to, to Eve, we read in verse 6, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, so lust of the flesh, and pleasing to the eye, lust of the eyes, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, pride of life. He hit her with all three plays. And he got a first down with her. She fell for him. She went for him. He, hit, he used his playbook against the Lord also, against Jesus. We know that Jesus was tempted as well. And when the devil went on offense... He waited until Jesus was hungry. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. It'll fix your hunger. Lust of the flesh. But Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So that play didn't get very far. So he tried another one. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And just imagine when everybody sees that and knows what you did, what you can boast about. Pride of life. But that one didn't work either. So then the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Look at everything you can see. It can all be yours. The lust of the eyes. That one didn't work either. He didn't make a first down. He had to, left, he had to leave the field. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Those are the things that that the devil throws at us. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And by making us aware of them, John is, is giving us a big picture here of what it means to be seduced by worldliness, to be grabbed by the allure of sin. And it's, it's always alluring, right? Right? Sin never presents itself as something disgusting or ugly or boring, right? It's always something that promises pleasure, beauty, or excitement. And of course then, John finishes up by reminding his congregation why these things are wrong. They, 
They don't come from the Father, which means they'll ultimately destroy the relationship with him. I want to read a story to you talking about these distractions, if you will. This is an article from preachingtoday.com that was written by a gentleman named Lee Eklov, and it was called Deceptive Appeal. For years, workers and visitors flocked to the site of a silvery... Of, let me start over. For years, workers and visitors flocked to the site of silvery dust flakes that floated to the floor in a mill where steel strips rolled over pads in a tall, cooling tower. And in his book called The Heat, Steelworkers' Lives and Legends, steelworker Joe Gutierrez tells how beautifully, quote, the snow danced in August. Then people discovered the dust was asbestos. Everybody breathed it, wrote Gutierrez. He now suffers from the slow, choking grip of asbestosis, as do many plant workers. Who am I? I'm everybody. Can't walk too far now. I get tired real fast, and it hurts when I breathe sometimes. And to think, we used to fight over that job, he says. And so Lee Eklov finishes up his article by saying, How many things in our culture resemble the silver flakes in that steel mill? They're enchanting, but deadly. In these set of verses today, John's preparing his troops for battle. He's going over the battle plan with his congregation, reminding them that their church needs to defend itself against two different fronts. And it still applies for us today. The obvious assault comes from out there, the world outside the church. We know that it's just naturally opposed to God, even though God loves everyone and everything in it. As Christians, we need to be aware of the temptations and the threats of the world and equip ourselves so that we don't fall prey to its threats and temptations. We need to recognize that just because a movie has the Walt Disney label on it, that doesn't mean it's necessarily the family-friendly kind of show that you watched as a child. We need to remember that when our guard's down and we're just casually watching a football game, there can be commercials for beer or or even corn chips that target the lust of the eyes and flesh to pull us in. That's the first assault. That's the obvious one. The second one, the one that's not so obvious, is the assault that comes from within the church itself. I'll start with pastors. Pastors who decide that they have to have a mansion in order to live properly and to have their best life now. Or they have to have their own private jet in order to ensure safe and timely travel. I actually listened to a pastor, an interview with a pastor who insisted, and it wasn't just one jet, he had to have more than one, but the idea that he had to have his own private jet, and that was for everybody else's benefit so that he wouldn't be on a passenger jet with other people who might make him sick. Because if he's sick, then he can't go and minister to all these other people at these conventions that he's going to and getting paid for. But it's not just pastors. Congregations boast about their youth groups. They boast about their attendance figures, their number of services, how many different campuses they have, and so forth, to show others that they know how to do this worship thing right. They've got church all figured out. Maybe they even write a book about it to let everyone else share in their success and increase theirs as well by buying the book. And these kinds of things lead to the problem why most of our so-called growth in our churches is really just sheep swapping or sheep stealing. Members of one church deciding to become members of another church on their own or through some kind of coercion or invitation. That's fine, but we're just transferring membership numbers. We're not adding converts. We're not doing anything to build the kingdom. We're just rearranging it. John's message might be a little bit difficult for us. He's really telling us that as a Christian church, we need to have some boundaries. We're not to love the world or anything in it, he says. He reminds us that the world outside of Christ is a treacherous place, 
a place that can do harm to believers. The church must have boundaries. Now, I'm not changing my stance on being a productive part of the community at all. We still need to be a visible and a vital part of Palmyra. We need to do it without letting any of the world's passions influence us or judgment, any of their influence or judgment um, affect our actions or the way that we judge ourselves. Again, we can't assimilate. We want the world to look more like the church. When we left in 2014, this church was part of an organization called PAC, which stood for Palmyra Area Cooperating Churches. I was disappointed to find that PAC felt the need to change their name. They're still PAC, but the acronym now stands for Palmyra, a caring community. Sounds nice, but... According to their website, they changed the name in 2014, just after we left, to open the membership to include secular and interfaith organizations. And quoting their website, it says, this allows us to more fully address the needs of the community. I'm not sure about that. I remember conversations just before we left. They were changing the name so that they could receive more monetary donations. There were businesses who wouldn't donate to an organization that had church in its name or that recognized itself as a religious organization. So what's the solution? Lust of the flesh. We want more money, so we'll stop identifying as churches. LCCM, Lebanon County Christian Ministries, recently had a vote among their delegates to decide whether or not to keep the term Christian Fortunately, the vote was yes, it is still Christian. But just the fact that there were people who brought it up, we have to continue to pray that the right kind of delegates will continue to be representing the churches that make up LCCM. Why are we so embarrassed or ashamed to declare ourselves as Christians or to declare ourselves as a church? I know churches that will change their name just because people are uncomfortable with the term church or they're uncomfortable with the term evangelical. So they have to change their name to fellowship or they're a community or this and that. And I, I hope I'm not stepping on any toes here, but it's the way it's got to be said. I, I, I'm saying that I have another pastor in front of me. <laughs> so I realized, uh-oh, I don't know what church's names he, he went through, but, but that's the point. But I'm not changing the stance. We should not be ashamed or embarrassed to call ourselves Christian or even to call ourselves a church. David Wells is an author whose book called God in the Wasteland was published in 1994. He wrote about the corruption of the world, intellectual corruption, religious corruption, cultural corruption. And he wrote about how how these values are shaping the witness of the church. He says that changes in society have rearranged the reality of God in such a way that God no longer makes a real difference in the church of today. He calls it a silent revolution that's barely noticed by its victims. He says the result is that the church is producing what he calls a weightless God who is of no consequence to those who believe Here's a short excerpt, just a paragraph from his book. He says, It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I don't mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world as inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetite for affluence and influence, his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. My, oh my, think about what he's saying. What's more interesting Time with God or time with the television? 
I think maybe today we could update this, say time with God or time with your smartphone or your iPad, whatever that electronic piece of equipment is that you carry around. God commanded that we take care of the poor, the widow, and the orphans. Does that carry more weight with you than your desire for a bigger house or one more car? What motivates you more, the idea of Judgment Day or news reports of protests and marches? You're beautiful because you're made in God's image. What's in your heart is the only thing that matters, not what's on your body. Or do you still think that you have to have that perfume that will turn heads? Or that exercise equipment that enhances certain parts of your body? Or that German sports car that says you've made it to the top? Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Enchanting, but deadly. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find in it. Father, sometimes your word makes us extremely uncomfortable. But I ask you, Lord, to help this church stay firmed on your principles. Help us to understand them and help us to continue to keep them. Father, I know that That doesn't mean that we can't love people. We want to respect and love everyone. We want to welcome everyone, but we also want everyone, even those of us who have been coming here for ages, to leave this place a little different than when we came in. Father, I pray for your help for all of us to recognize and avoid the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I ask you, invite you to stand as we sing our final hymn, number 496.
so as you leave this place and you go out this week and you're assaulted by the world, may the Lord bless you and protect you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.